Today we conclude our study in Psalm 23. Please turn with me there. As we prepare to read the psalm in its entirety for the final time. But the focus of our study will actually be on verses 5 and 6. And as you turn there, uh, feel free to this week at some point begin reading through the book of Exodus. Uh, we begin that next week. It's 40 chapters, so I don't think you're going to want to try to like read through the whole book over and over again. But if you at least start with chapters 1 and 2, you'll be in a good spot uh, for next week. I'm excited about that together. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. They call it a superhost. It's an elite status that those who own certain properties can achieve if they can satisfy the every whim and fancy of the person staying there. I don't own any properties at which people leave reviews. I'm sure my children could leave some for our own home. But the formality of being like having your hospitality like placed on the internet for all to see is a pretty unique pressure. Experienced secondhand through my parents who purchased a property last year in Emerald Isle, North Carolina. And it's just right off the beach. And my mom's a professor, my dad's a brick mason. They've never done the property game before. The pressure was immense for them to actually like achieve super host status on Airbnb. Five stars was not enough. She needed a super host. <laughs> and so the, the process was relentless. I mean, the first review that anyone ever left was a five-star review. It came from my brother. <laughs> but that wasn't enough. You have to have a certain number in a certain order. And so the quest to please every person who would come in continued to the point of offering ideas of where people can go, sending them automated text messages and emails anytime that they would like sign up. She would even begin asking them what their favorite drink was and drive the hour and a half all the way to Emerald Isle, put their favorite drink in the refrigerator, and then drive back home. I think within three months, she finally achieved the status that she was looking for. But the process was near impossible. I mean, just think about your own experiences with hospitality, whether you were on the giving end or the receiving end. 
Some people, for example, uh, know how to be very formal in their hospitality. Think Downton Abbey. There's place settings, everything's pristine and clean, and as beautiful as it is, and as lavish as it is, for some people, that's actually a rather uncomfortable environment. They're afraid that they're going to break the rules, or the China, or the, the social protocols. It, it, it's supposed to be this, this wonderful expression of care, and yet it can be stifling. And then some people go down the other rabbit hole, where they're like, I'm just going to be real and authentic. I'm going to leave dishes in the sink and clothes on the floor. And I I just want people to enter into my life. Because I know I feel at pressure when I'm at other people's houses and they're clean. So I'm not even going to clean my house. They just get to come in and they just get to experience like what it's really like around here. Um, I just want to let you know, I know what it's really like most of the time. And if I'm coming over, I don't want to also see what it's really like at your house too. You know, it's kind of nice. It's nice when the dishes are clean and, and stuff's not in, just a thought. But some people are like, that's real. One's regal, the other's real. You, the, you do the regal and royal, some people are like, oh, this is so unrelational. You, you do the relational, and people are like, do you not care? The endeavor to show hospitality as a human is, is almost impossible. We know one-star reviews, we know five-star reviews, we're we're always somewhere in between. But have you ever considered that the essence of hospitality, the ideal that we're striving for, has already been modeled for us by our God? We think of hospitality as like our thing, it's something from the human domain, you know, something that we do. God, God's not into that. God is king. He's creator. He's ruler. Or even as we've seen in Psalm 23 so far, you can get the idea that God is a shepherd. But you don't think of shepherds showing hospitality to sheep. They're not like inviting the sheep into their life and having like a close personal relationship with the sheep. It's a, there's distance there. The, the shepherd exists on one level. The sheep exists on another level. And while that is a very true and real picture of God, David can't actually conclude his praise with the shepherding metaphor. Did you notice how he switched from verses 4 to 5, from the image of shepherd to the image of host. Just look at your Bible real quick to see the inspired emphasis. He says, you prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. My, my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy follow me, and I will dwell or live or return in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, you don't do that with sheep. <laughs> you don't make a table for sheep. You don't give them a cup. And as much as people try to say, well, there were some shepherds who put anointing oil on sheep for certain reasons, that's not true. Sheep don't live in the shepherd's house. You know, they may be like in a pen out back occasionally when they're not having to forage for things elsewhere, but like they don't live with the sheep. This is a different picture of God altogether, and the picture is that of a gracious host. It's the hospitality of God. 
And I would just ask you at the outset, if you were to rate the hospitality of God toward you, how would you rate it? Maybe for some of you, you like his royal rule and you think that's amazing, but you're, you couldn't give him five stars because he's just not as relational, he's not as close. Or maybe some of you would say, I'd give him five stars on relationship and closeness. He's really near and he's really nice, but my life is such a hot mess right now and there is so much that I'm going through. It seems like he could do a little better job at like cleaning up the world around me, like making this a more comfortable place for me to live. I, I don't know that I could give him five stars. He, he may be a host, but he's not a super host. And yet the text is intended to convince you otherwise. David here expresses his confidence in the hospitality of God so that everyone listening today would either be encouraged by it or enticed by it. Some of you enjoy the hospitality of God, but you're, you're not actually enjoying it. You're not actually encouraged by it. You're, you're, you're looking at the wrong stuff. It's not, it's not as invigorating as it should be, and, and this text serves as a corrective. Some of you don't know the hospitality of God. You don't know the kindness of God, and, and as David rehearses it, as I try to share it with you, my prayer is that you would be enticed into it, that you would be welcomed into God's good, gracious, favorable presence. That's the goal. We're looking at God, the Lord, Yahweh, as our shepherd host. We've seen him as our shepherd provider. We've seen him as our shepherd presider, the one who rules over. We finish it's the subset of that category metaphor of God as shepherd host. He rules over us, but in a relational way. And particularly, I want you to notice uh, two ways God extends hospitality to his people. There's two ways. And they come out beautifully uh, in the text. The first is in verse 5. God extends his hospitality extravagantly. How does he do it? Extravagantly. When he is showing kindness to his people, when he is making them feel at home with himself, he doesn't just go with like the bare minimum. He doesn't just meet things at baseline. He actually exceeds the boundaries. He, he, it, it is bigger and it is better than anything that you could possibly imagine. And I would say that for a couple reasons. The first is he actually exceeds like the boundaries of quality that would be expected. Like it's, there's this qualitative hospitality that's listed in the text. And you see it there in verse 5. Notice these elements. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now you're saying, Justin doesn't sound like much, but it would have sounded like much to those originally listening. The, the, opening, the opening line, the opening uh, picture is, is one that really would have resonated with an ancient Near Eastern audience. The idea of preparing a table 
was the act of laying out a lavish meal. I say this for several reasons. The, the verb prepare here doesn't just mean to get things ready. It's actually the word that's used in some places to talk about the preparing of a legal case. It requires careful planning and attention. It's the word that's used in Leviticus to talk about the way that the priest would prepare a sacrifice on the altar. That was not just some slapshod job, like they, they laid the sticks a certain way, they had to have the grating a certain way, they had to prepare the animal a certain way. In the context of preparing a table, the, the natural word picture is easy enough for us to see. Children in the room may be tempted to read this very literally, like, oh, God makes us like a wooden table. <laughs> but the fancy name for this is metonymy. It's when you take, a, you take a small picture of something and you use it to represent the whole. We do this all the time. The White House made a terrible decision yesterday. Well, the White House, like literally you're talking about that house sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but what you mean by that is like the whole system, the whole organization, like everything else beyond that is metonymy. Or we say... Uh, that Hollywood has hit a dry spell lately. We're not talking about rainfall amounts in Hollywood, California. We're talking about the utter lack of any good movies that have come out in the last three months. And I'm not joking. <laughs> Hollywood. Hollywood represents, like just the name of that city represents the whole film industry, whether it's from uh, Georgia, I mean Atlanta, Georgia, Wilmington, North Carolina, or Toronto, Canada. The little piece represents the whole. As they would read these lines, you prepare a table before me, like they're thinking of a lavish banquet, and not just a pauper's banquet, by the way, like a kingly banquet, a royal banquet. This particular phrase was often associated with like the, the, the royal party, like the true, like pulling out all the stops, the, the utmost of what could be provided. Especially in the context, by the way, here of a king. Remember that the shepherding metaphor in the ancient Near East not only communicated literal sheep with shepherds, but that is what kings themselves like, would give, they'd give themselves the title, shepherd. They're a king, they're a ruler, they're a caretaker for the people. Here the king, the caretaker of his people, prepares a table for his people. He lays out a lavish banquet for them, replete with several things. It's not just provision, which is qualitative food. But there's also protection. Notice he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. C.S. Lewis had a hard time with this. He thought that uh, in his commentary on the Psalms, he thought that this is so mean, this is so cruel of God. Like, why, why would he make the enemies watch along as, as people were eating? You know, like he was thinking of subjugated enemies. Uh, that's thought. I don't think that's actually what David is communicating here. What he's actually saying is that in the ancient Near East, when you came to sit under the table of a ruler, you were insured his protection. To eat at his table was to be part of his family and to be under his care. Enemies would not attack on the basis of the status of the host, not the one being hosted. 
Like, they were under his special protection and care. What David is saying here is that even though he knows what it's like to have political enemies, to have people who are after him, people who physically wanted him dead, he could still feast on God's rich provision without fear of intrusion because he knew that at the end of the day, he was always under the protection and care of his gracious host. He had provision. He had protection. But notice this next one. I think that this is, um, this is really good for us uh, to consider because it's so confusing. I truly, in my whole life, I, I welcome the time to study this. He pampers us as well. It's pampering. Um, but it doesn't make sense at first. He says, you anoint my head with oil. Uh, I don't know the last time you had your, your head anointed uh, with oil. I had somebody anoint my ear with oil one time without telling me ahead of time because I told them I had an earache and he wanted to lay hands on me and pray. And so I just bend my head over to pray and he breaks out his anointing oil without me knowing it and like gives me a wet willy with olive oil. (laughs) That's the closest I've ever been to an anointing. And yet the text here says that there's a real anointing going on for all who would sit under God's table. And you need to just understand the verb here. So there's two different Hebrew words for anoint. One is meshach, from which we get Messiah, like the anointed one, the one that's marked as a king. Meshiach, you know, meshach, it just means like to smear. It was just a, it was a kind of a symbolic thing. It was basically by smearing the oil on a king, you were saying that this person was going to be specially marked off uh, as one who would be empowered by the spirit to rule God's people. And you see all kinds of examples of this. Uh, Even in our own day, we have these ceremonies that convey significance, like a coronation. Well, I mean, if you think about it, a coronation is nothing but a piece of metal placed on someone's head. You're like, well, big deal, metal. But it means something else. It's conveying something larger. Uh, Anointing uh, was a symbolic act. Meshach, the normal word to smear, was typically used for the anointing of someone in a position of authority to set them off, a coronation, if you will. But that's not the word here. It's still a symbolic act, but this one's actually a little more functional. The the word here, this is going to make some of you uncomfortable, literally means fat oil. Fat or oil. You're like, eh. In our American context, uh, fat is typically not viewed as a positive thing. But in the Bible... This word is often associated with abundance and prosperity. There's all kinds of proverbs that talk about like obedience making the bones fat. And you're like, oh, I don't want fat bones. Well, when you think about a context where people are literally eating hand to mouth, like to to actually have a little more meat on the bones meant that you had access to more food, you had access to more wealth, you had access to more prosperity. And so this, this oil, this fatness was just a way of actually like extending symbolic honor and graciousness to the host, I mean, excuse me, to the hosted. It was a normal thing for somebody to take a long journey and be dusty and weary and dry. I mean, when we, we're just driving from like point A to point B in our air-conditioned cars, They're traveling scores of miles through like desert-like conditions. I mean, they're just, they're a mess. 
And so that's why there was always this expectation that feet would be washed and, and the guests would even be anointed with oil to help soothe their dry skin. It, it's almost like uh, they're saying, look, like, here, go take a shower. Like, we've got all the soaps for you. You know, like, you get cleaned up. We'll give you everything you need. And then we're going to celebrate and party together. Notice the hospitality here. It isn't just, okay, provision and protection. But even pampering, comfort, richness. David says, I experience not just the, the bare minimum provision of God, but like he honors me and he, he restores me and, and, and like he, he just like infuses me with good. He, he even gives me the, these oils so that I could like enjoy the, the, the feast all the more. And then the last, the last picture of his hospitality that just exceeds the normal standard of quality is, is the, the pleasing nature of it. There's pampering, but there's also pleasing that this final metaphor is so easy to grasp where he says, my cup overflows. This was his drinking cup. This was the chalice. There were no red solo cups to keep throwing away over and over at the party because people don't put their names on them. It was a nice cup given to the guest. And what he says is, the wine never runs dry. It's always full. It's to the brim. Like, he's always satisfying me. He's filling up my cup. He has given me access to pleasure after pleasure after pleasure. I mean, it is just, just this like beautiful thing. You're like, whoa, okay, super host. But that's not all. That's not all. It isn't just the quality of his extravagant hospitality. But I want you to also note in this text the closeness of it. Yahweh does both. He provides all the stuff, but he also enters into the personal relationship. Maybe you know what it's like to go to a fantastic party. Somebody else like snuck you in, or you were a friend of a friend. And the host like greets you at the door and says, oh, it's so great to have you. And you never like really talk to them again. You're kind of left to your own. What I want to point out here is that the hospitality extended by God to David and to all God's people by extension is not some impersonal grand gala. It is an intimate event. It is unlike the lunch that I had with Ron DeSantis a couple uh, years ago. I think I told you about this already, but here's the highlights. Somebody says, you get to have lunch with Ron. I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. And I show up anticipating having lunch with the governor and a couple other people who are also pastors. And he wants to hear my perspectives on what Florida did anyway. <laughs> and so I show up and it's in a parking lot. And they say, um, you have to leave your phones in your car. You can't bring your phone. I'm like, oh. And they're like, um, get on the bus. And there's like 200 other pastors there and we're all getting on buses to go to some unknown location, which happened to be some mansion, you know, like by some lake. And then we get there and we're like, okay, I don't know that I'm having an intimate lunch with Ron with 200 other people here. You know, when you're wearing name tags, it's just not that intimate of an event. 
Well, Ron's nowhere to be seen for an hour and a half. And so we're eating hors d'oeuvres and hors d'oeuvres and hors d'oeuvres. But I do notice that in the center of the house is set up a couple hundred chairs, just like this, and two stools on the front. And finally, after an hour and a half into the event, Governor DeSantis shows up. He sits there for 10 minutes, does some talking points on everything that he's angry about at the time. He takes no questions from the audience. He gets out because he has to go speak to a major donor over at the next house. The event's over, and we all go home. And the expectation was lunch with Ron DeSantis, and what I got was a highly impersonal event that was pretty cool to tell a story at some point, but it wasn't he and I connecting on any personal level. You know the experience. Sometimes the expectation of hospitality, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be great, but like, there's no intimacy here, there's no closeness. Like, I didn't feel like I, I got near, and yet what does David say? Notice the highly personal language here. Already back in verses 3 and 4, he switched from speaking of God in the third person, he, the Lord, my shepherd, to the second person, you, you do this for me. And he extends that second person, like singular pronoun language here, and he adds to it the first person singular, me, you and me, you and me, God. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Not even you prepare a table for us, as much as I love the corporate emphasis that we should have as a church. This is highly individual. He says, you anoint my head with oil. My cup doesn't overflow. Like, this isn't just some grand hospitality. It is a close hospitality. It is intimate. Like, God is near him. And David loves it. And it's so good for his soul. And brothers and sisters, I bring this out to you because I want you to understand that in the kindness of God, he does not merely tolerate you, but he treasures you. We struggle with this, do we not? We just think, okay, I understand that if I trust in Jesus, I'm in. But in light of what I've done in the past, and in light of how I struggle in the present, and in light of how, you know, like frankly distracted I've been, and I haven't read my Bible as much as I wanted to, and I haven't done as much church stuff as I needed, and I didn't share the gospel like I was hoping to do, and I should be probably a little more involved. We just think that, okay, well, we're in the house, but we're not the object of affection. And David retrains our thinking here to say, God just doesn't accept you. He embraces you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He actually uh, treasures you. I, um, I was reminded of this when reflecting on the story, just hang with me, from Luke 15. The most famous story in Luke 15 is the story of what is often called the prodigal son. I think it's better titled the prodigal God. But the the reason why Jesus even tells that story comes at the beginning of Luke 15, where he says that uh, the, the historical background is that there were these Pharisees who were criticizing Jesus for having meals with sinners. Like, what's he doing eating with sinners? Like, why is he hanging out with those people? And so Jesus tells a story to correct their view of his hospitality, and he tells three stories. The first one was of the lost coin, 
And do you remember the, the end of the story? The person finds the coin, and there's a great celebration. He loved finding that lost coin, or she loved finding that lost coin. And, and the next story is the story of the lost sheep, right? Shepherd. And when they find that sheep, there, there's a party. Like, it, like This is a celebration. Like he, he loves getting back the lost sheep. And then the best one's the one for last. When that son goes off and he does his own thing and he rebels against his father and he realizes that he's at the end and like this life is wasted and it's no good. What's the father doing? He's on the lookout. He's on the lookout for his son and he sees him and he like runs to him. Ancient oriental patriarchs do not run anywhere. But this father ran and he embraces his son and what does he do? He slays the fatted calf like he throws a party like no other. And what do all of these pictures show us? God doesn't just accept people reluctantly. Like he treasures them extravagantly. Like this hospitality is over and above. I don't know anyone that's ever shown me this kind of hospitality. People get close. Where the environment's right, and the provisions are good, and the personal interaction's great. I mean, it's it's wonderful. But to this level, that God would receive me, you, as sinners, and celebrate us? Zephaniah 3, fantastic passage. It even says that God sings over us. What are you singing over? Or do you even get, do you ever even get that happy about anything that you just naturally just start singing, like making up a song? God just sings over his people. His his hospitality is extravagant on account of its quality and its closeness. And so I tell you this, friends, because you need to understand that Yahweh treasures those who are in Christ, and this helps us in a couple ways. I, I think it helps those of us who are constantly aching for attention but striving to find it in all the wrong places. It is normal to want to be treasured, loved, accepted. That is not just some modern psychological crutch. It's how God made us. He made us for relationship. What did he say when he created Adam and no Eve? It is not good that man should be alone. And yet once Eve was created, a compliment to him, he says, it is very good. Of course, that speaks to marriage, but it also speaks to human relationship. God intended for us to do this together in group. He intended for us to like be community and, and one with one another. It isn't just like all productivity and no presence. God is a relational God. And so in that craving that, that you and I all desire, like to, to be known, to be loved, I, I'm just telling you, like the good news is that you find that, you experience that ultimately in the Lord Jesus. And it is actually embodied, friends. It isn't just something invisible and ethereal, but like it's embodied through other people who know and love Jesus and extend that knowledge of him to you through the things that they say and extend that love of him to you through the things that they do. It isn't just you and this invisible individual relationship with Jesus and he's loving you privately, personally, although that could happen. There is a body of Christ. People serve as his hands, as his feet. 
They serve as his mouth and they speak on his behalf. And he is ministering to our need. There is no coming into an individual relationship with the host without also enjoying the relationship with all others that he has called into his family sphere as well. This is where relationship is to be found. So you're not just tolerated, you're treasured. And you experience that in Christ and his people. And may I just say briefly that God actually intends for you to extend that hospitality to others. We show other people the hospitality that Christ has shown us. Don't just tolerate those around you. Treasure them. Uh, Fred teaches a parenting class here on a regular basis, the brother who was praying earlier. And one of the lessons that I've heard repeated from some of your students is teaching your children to value the preciousness of others. (laughs) Uh, That is true. All of created humanity, they're precious because they're created in the image of God. But those restored in the image of God, even more precious. How often do we just kind of tolerate the other Christians around us instead of actually like, like fighting to enter into their well-being and, and to search for their highest good and to welcome them in? Just be careful. As you, as you take in the hospitality of God that you also let it flow out. So there is extravagant, extravagant hospitality shown by God, but there is also, secondly, relentless hospitality shown by God. What kind of hospitality does God show? What kind of host is he? He hosts his people, not only extravagantly, but relentlessly. Relentlessly. Look at verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is beautiful. I love this. We're seeing that like Yahweh, God, the Lord is chasing after us. Like when, when we're not at his table, when we're on those paths of righteousness, when we're in between those, those, those verdant green pastures and those beautiful sparkling crystal waters, when, when we're moving to the next place of provision, even when it seems that things are scary or plain or ordinary, he's still chasing after us with his goodness and mercy. That's what our text says, goodness and mercy. What, what is that? Well, good is an easy enough term to understand. In fact, if you look at six different English translations for what would be translated differently with goodness, you're not going to find anything different. It's always the same. Good is normally that which contributes to life, that which is functional, that, that which is right or correct. So goodness, God's goodness, not his meanness, his goodness is always chasing after us. But notice the second thing. This one is all over the map. In our translation, it says mercy. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But let me just give you like the short list of all the other translations. Uh, The NAS says loving kindness. The New English translation says faithfulness. The NIV says love. The Christian Standard Bible says faithful love. The New Living Translation says unfailing love. Like nobody can land on a word. Good was pretty easy to translate. Uh, Mercy, 
something of a mixture of all that. It's cool. I, I love this word because we don't even have good words for love. I mean, we say, I love ice cream, and I love my family, and I love Jesus. Like, and you're using all the same word. Hebrew had some nuance. But even then, it wasn't as versatile as Greek. This particular word, chesed, speaks of a, a committed love. But I would say that when you see it in the, in the Bible translated all these various ways, it, it has three different intensities, almost like a, a box fan. You know, there's low, medium, and high. Uh, low is just uh, general kindness, like being nice to other people, like, hey, he's a nice guy. You could use Hesed for that. Uh, you turn it up to medium, and you get committed love in family. Like, um, I always buy my mother a gift for Mother's Day, or um, a father takes his child to the hospital. I mean, it's, the, it's these obligational kind of loving things that we do in committed family relationships. But then there's a high intensity. Like the fan is blowing at full speed anytime you see that word love, loving kindness, mercy in the context of the name Yahweh or all caps Lord. Because God's love is different. It's not just like, okay, she's my mom, I gotta love her, you know, or this is my brother and I gotta be nice to him. It's not like that kind of committed love. It's not just him being generally nice. It's actually his sovereign determination to do good to a people that don't deserve it. It's not an already established relationship, but it's a relationship that he himself creates by a covenant, by a contract almost. Like it's the kind of thing that took like stubborn and rebellious people enslaved in Egypt and got them out of there anyway. It's it's the kind of thing that took that same whining and complaining bunch that should have been obliterated in the wilderness and said, here, take the promised land flowing with milk and honey. It's just determined to do good. And what David says here is that this is always coming after me. I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones translates this in her Jesus Storybook Bible, not a heavy theological resource in in the micro, but it is in the macro. Here's her definition of hesed. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that beautiful? And it's just always there. Our translation says, rather lamely, it follows us all the days of our life. I don't like that at all. I don't normally say that, but I'm admitting I don't like that translation. And here's why. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like goodness and mercy are kind of like creepily hanging out in the shadows. And they kind of like tiptoe around. But the Hebrew word is like the word for pursuit, like an all-out chase, a hunt. It's frequently used to talk about like an enemy being pursued by an army. It's the, it's the word used in that situation in Genesis, really strange but true, where Lot, Abraham's nephew, gets kidnapped by these kings And it says that Abraham took off after him. Like, think about that. Like, this is like police chase. Goodness and mercy are nipping at your heels. Goodness and mercy 
or after you like cops on a high-speed chase. Like, goodness and mercy. They're pursuing you. They're hunting you. They're running you down. Like, this is a, a, a relentless hospitality. It doesn't matter where we go. It's there. It's following. It, it, it doesn't just let the person go. It's always on the scent. Really? Maybe sometimes goodness and mercy are following me all the days of my life. But is that true all the time? That's what the inspired word says. It says, surely, for sure, no doubt about it, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. All of them. What about on depressing days? It's following. What about on diseased days when you don't get the diagnosis that you want from the... It's goodness and mercy there. It's following. Hear me out. What what about devastating days when there's political turmoil or just crazy out of control things are happening that are affecting us, our world or our family, goodness and mercy are following? What about deprived days? What about like when your checking account is in the negative or there's too much month and not enough money? Like is, is goodness and mercy following along in that? Like is that really what's happening? Or what about distracted days where you know you've bitten off more than you can chew and you haven't actually been able to actually read and focus and think about God in any way? Is goodness and mercy still following then? The text just says, friends, that all the days of my life, God's good, life-giving, covenant, loyal, faithful, unbreaking love is following behind us. And you've got to trust the promise. But I'll admit, our, our perspective is tough. When we are in the chase, when we are running it down, when we are in the full pursuit of life, it's hard to really know what's behind us. I don't want you to feel like you're off today if you don't always recognize that the goodness and mercy of God are hunting you down. Sometimes we just can't see it. I don't know if you've ever seen the um, old but great movie, uh, The Fugitive. Harrison Ford is this doctor guy, and he's accused of, of killing his wife. And, and ultimately, like, some crazy things happen where he did not do it, but there's a bus accident. He goes, like, on the lam and starts running away, like, trying to prove his innocence, and the guy who's coming after him is Tommy Lee Jones. He's like, you know, the, the marshal, like in charge of this whole investigation. And so, like scene after scene, it's, it's Ford and, and Jones, Ford and Jones. Like he's almost about to get him. But through the story, it comes out to the investigator's purview, to, to Tommy Lee Jones's character that Kimball is actually innocent. And he's not actually trying to hunt him down to do him harm, but he's actually trying to hunt him down to clear his name. And it's exactly where the movie climaxes, where where Ford finally realizes that the guy that he thought was his great enemy 
was actually turning out to be like his great like source of encouragement and help and strength. Like the thing he thought would harm him was actually the thing that would help him. And I would just say by parallel, friends, we don't always know what's chasing us because we just don't have that much time to turn around. I don't know about you, but my peripheral vision is just not that great. I can see a little bit of what's going on here, but I don't really know what's there. I sure don't know what's behind me. And all I would say to you, friends, is that there are times in which it will take some perspective to see and experience the goodness and mercy of God. On those dark days, those depressing days, those debilitating days, those disease days. He is at work. You must trust the promise that he is doing you good. There is now, therefore, no No, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As bad as it may seem, it is not his hand of judgment against you. It is his hand of goodness and hope and mercy for you. I think one of the things that kind of help us with this, because it would be easy to say, Justin, you don't have a flaming clue what's going on in my life right now. I appreciate you trying to be fair to the text, but this does not align with my experience. It's nice for you to say this uh, and your nice pastoral existence up there, but you don't know the real problems that I'm facing. I'm not saying it as a pastor. I'm saying it as a relayer of what David himself experienced. Do you want to know what David was going through when this was written? You want to know if this is all just wishful thinking? His own experience teaches us that He has survived by this point a sordid affair, incest, murder, civil war, and the death of his children. And yet he still says, goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. You see this over and over again in the scriptures. Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Ruth, Jesus, Paul. And I would say if you need even more hope, talk to other brothers and sisters in Christ who have been there and done that. The crazy thing is that this pain and this disappointment and this confusion and this frustration and this difficulty of just going down the normal righteous roads, it always, it always ultimately leads us to or back to the home of God. Sometimes we're out in the road And then oftentimes we get to enjoy once more rest in his house. Notice how the two verses relate. He says, or the first half and the second half relate. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, this is fantastic. You're like, okay. Um, Sometimes he's being chased, and it seems he's being chased into the very house of God. What What is the house of God? Think about that for a second. Like, where did he go? What is, what is David speaking of here? He says, it's his home, it's his house. Well, just anecdotally, I would say, I, you know, when you've tried to define home, it's a tough thing, right? Like, just ask, I don't know, 90% of you, where are you from? You don't even know how to answer the question. Some of you were born and raised here, but a lot of us have moved around to such a degree that we don't even know where home is anymore. Just a personal moment. Like, I've thought about this, and I don't mean to sound morose. But, like, Tanya and I have actually had the conversation, like, if I die, where, do I, where am I buried? 
Five generations of family members living in Pitt County, North Carolina, don't ask that question. It's Pinewood Cemetery in Greenville, North Carolina. I, on the other hand, don't have a clue. So home is a funny issue. The home of God. We're going to be at home with God. The best definition I've ever heard of home was simply, it's the place you come back to. Home is the place you come back to. Even that's hard uh, to define. But it's true here with David. He knew the place he'd come back to over and over and over again. The text says it this way. Your translation and mine say, shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that is true. It does mean to live in God's house. But it would be more literally translated, return over and over to the house of the Lord forever and ever. Return, return. He just keeps coming back. It's the place David comes back to. So the question is, where does he come back to? Where's he going? He's just entering this in like his like mind palace? Or is this like an actual place? Well, we understand this on three levels. Hang with me here. I want to teach you something, but I think it'll train your heart. This operates poetically, historically, and theologically. Let's go to, to level one of the house here. Poetically, capture what David's saying. You know, like he's doing a word picture, and what he's trying to say is his hospitality is so generous that the door is always open. Spanish like to say it, mi casa es su casa. David is basically saying that, you know what, I have the kind of relationship with God where I don't have to like knock, I don't have to like, you know, text ahead of time. Like, I can walk in, and just based on the metaphors we've seen so far, I can eat his food, drink his wine, use his shower, crash on his couch. Like, it's that level of intimacy. Like, he's constantly coming home to God, poetically, saying, I'm near to God. He's not just like, you know, cool with me, but like, he, he craves my company. He wants me in with him. Like, the door is truly always open, and yet, it doesn't just function poetically. It functioned historically. You know what that was for David? This will blow your mind. It was the tabernacle. Trust me, I've been reading through Exodus. I get why you would be shocked at that. Because every time I get to that spot in Exodus, I'm like, okay, I can make it. I can make it. Okay, that, that's a lot of gold rings. Oh, there's, yep, some more curtains. And, uh, okay, they're going to, you know, make a candle. And, like, it, I don't know about you. Maybe you are more spiritual than I am. But, like, I'm reading it, and I'm like, whew. But I finally understood something, and we'll see it in Exodus. If you were to actually put together that mental picture of what the tabernacle looked like, it was stunningly beautiful. Why? Because it was the dwelling place of God on earth. It represented his very presence. I mean, it was like a royal throne room, and there was a spot of most intimacy, the most holy place, and then there was a spot of intimacy, and then there was a spot of invitation, And David, even though he couldn't go directly into the tabernacle, he had to go through a priest. 
And even though it was only symbolically enacted, like through sacrifices, he still just enjoyed knowing that, that he actually had access to the favorable presence of God. You understand, friends, that that is what we lost in Eden. We were exiled from the place of God's special presence, that beautiful garden. Like we were sent out, like angels with flaming swords said, you will not pass. And there's no hope of God living with his people again until the promise of Exodus shows up that God says, okay, I'm going to build a dwelling with you. And then it's made even more permanent by a temple. But guess what? Historically, as, as cool as that was, their sin and rebellion would actually cause God to temporarily withdraw his presence from that place, and it would become nothing more than an old ratty tent and a broken down building. But he would never give up on his promise to live with his people. So what would happen next? John 1.14 says it this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. God pitched his tent among us, not with brick and mortar and wood and stone, but in the person of Jesus, he was saying to all who would trust in him, I am with you. You will enjoy my presence forever. Like, welcome home. Like, Jesus is that home for us. Like, he actually said that through the tearing down of his body in crucifixion and the resurrection itself, like, now the new temple would be built in him. And you're thinking, like, oh, yay, Jesus. But here's the problem again. I'm just being real. I don't know about you, but I, 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 I haven't seen Jesus walking around here lately. Like, how do you have this relational access to Jesus? He, he ascended back into heaven, and he said he's returning again. Is this just like another false promise? No, friends. Because what Jesus is doing is preparing a better place for us where it's not just physical realities and spiritual realities, but he's, he's preparing a place in his Father's house where those things come together in a new heavens and a new earth. And in the meantime, he has indwelt us with his own spirit. And we enjoy his presence as his word is proclaimed among us, even as a gathered church. There's a table that we regularly participate in. There's truth that's regularly shared in God's people gathered around the preaching of the word and the practice of communion. Like we get just another insight of what it's like to be welcomed and invited. And that's why I always make such a big deal out of people participating in communion. You need to know that you've been welcomed again. He wants you to partake. He wants you to enjoy. Don't discipline yourself out of his presence unless you refuse to come to him. But receive his hospitality, and one day it will ultimately culminate in this beautiful scene that is previewed for us in the book of Revelation two times. It's like a, a great movie trailer. And you know, sometimes there's like movie trailer version one, and then there's movie trailer version two. Here are the two inspired movie trailers of God's presence forever being with us. The first one we read earlier I'm grateful to John for reading it. What does it say in Revelation 7 and 15? Therefore, they are before the throne of God. That's his chair from which he rules. They serve him day and night in his temple. That's his house. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb will be in the midst of the throne. He'll be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. Like, there comes 
a point in time where like none of the physical obstacles to enjoying his presence will be there anymore. They'll actually all be transformed into expressions of his hospitality. Like, like we're not just returning to a symbolic home, but David adds this, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, for length of days. There was a temporal enjoyment, but there was an eternal one as well. And here's the second movie trailer. This one's even more succinct. What does he say in Revelation 21? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Isn't that beautiful? That's the house of the Lord. Like symbolized now, but like experienced in its fullness one day to come. And so David is basically telling all of us who trust in Yahweh as their shepherd, his house is your home. His house is your home. I wonder if you could even say that. I won't do it because it makes some of you feel awkward. But if you were just to say over and over again, his house is my home. His house is my home. So what do you do with that? I tell you, friends, you need to enjoy that. Again, you're not tolerated, you're treasured. He invites you into his presence. But I would also say you do need to experience that by faith, just constantly reminding yourself of his good promises in his word, gathering with his people to, to reflect once more on his kindness to us. There's just something more effective about us doing this together than it is alone. I don't care who your favorite band is or who your favorite artist is. It's just not the same watching the YouTube concert as it is being in the crowd. <laughs> God says, celebrate this hospitality with one another around a table with a focus on Christ and his word preached. And I would just say to some of you who are like, hey, uh, Justin, I get what you're saying, but my experience, even at this church, as cool as it is, uh, hasn't been like a really homey one for me. I still feel distant. I still feel like alone. I still feel isolated in some way, shape, or form. Hey, listen, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. This is a human representation of God's temple. But let me encourage you to envision what it will look like to come. There are some good expressions here, even though there are some things still under construction. If you've ever renovated a house or built one, even when it's not finished, you can see where it's going. It's a tough place to be, but you know where it's headed. I used to sing this song as a kid. He's still working on me. Deep theology. But the second verse says this. There really ought to be a sign upon our heart. Don't judge us yet. There's some unfinished parts. But I'll be better just according to his plan, fashioned by the master's loving hands. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Like, 
God's still under construction in this process with us. Envision, though, the ultimate end. I conclude with just this great reminder that I refreshed myself of last night. I think it's a closing picture that will help us. In C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, there's this um, dismal scene when the children enter through the wardrobe in which it is always winter but never Christmas. For those of you who have a second home or who have moved down here from up north, you imagine how terrible that is? Always winter, never Christmas. I've had all the winter I've wanted in three weeks. I don't want any more. But it's worth it if there's Christmas, if there's the closeness. It's just a unique spot. And so under the rule of the white witch, it's always winter. It's never Christmas. It's always dark. It's always dank. It's always depressing. It's always cold. And yet when Aslan, the Christ figure, begins to move, things begin to change. All of a sudden, the blizzard stops. Father Christmas is spotted again, riding through the countryside. In one scene, there's a fox and a couple of satyrs, and they're like enjoying this like wonderful feast together, proposing a toast. And Edmund says that he thinks that he could even smell plum pudding. Like you could just catch the warmth of that particular scene. Like, like it's not just winter, but there's, there's Christmas. There's, there's home. There's, there's nearness when Christ is on the move. Friends, our Lord Jesus Christ is the epitome of everything that you would love about Christmas, about home, about closeness, about relationship. It's all summed up in him and experienced in him through faith alone. And so I ask two really practical questions. One, have you received that by faith? Not by your religious efforts, not by turning a new leaf, not by doing your own thing but by trusting in him alone, have you received it? And then secondly, are you reveling in it? Are you enjoying it? Because you'll never be able to reflect it to others till you do. Receive it. Revel in it. Enjoy it. And let us close in prayer with a song of thanksgiving to the Lord Jesus, our gracious host. The song itself will be the prayer, so I'll ask the musicians if they'll go ahead and come forward. And we conclude by singing, Jesus, thank you. And listen out for these lines. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. I know no better way for us to conclude this reflection on Psalm 23. And then as soon as that song is over, Please be seated as we have a brief time of prayer for some of our workers who are going to the field that are in residence with us today. That will conclude the service. Please stand. Let's sing Jesus Thank You.